The interstellar travels of Voyager 2 and the implications of thousands of satellites right above our heads. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The Space Exploration Show from WMFE. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Voyager 2 punched a hole through our heliosphere, sending it into interstellar space. The space probe launched more than 40 years ago, along with its twin, Voyager 1, on a mission to visit the outer planets. Now, the two have exited the boundary of our solar system and are beaming back data to scientists here on Earth. We'll talk with New York Times science reporter Ken Chang about the mission and how the data is reshaping the way scientists think about our solar system. And in a story a bit closer to home, SpaceX's Starlink constellation is taking shape. The private company launched 60 more satellites into orbit last week, the first in a network of thousands of satellites to blanket the globe with global high-speed internet. But some are concerned that the Constellation, along with other planned space-based internet networks, could add to the growing number of space debris and interference with astronomical observations. In this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we'll talk about the science of space junk and the concerns of scientists here on Earth. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. A report released by NASA Inspector General says the agency's commercial crew program is facing additional delays and questions some $200 million awarded to one of those contractors, Boeing. According to the report, in 2016, Boeing was paid a so-called premium of $287 million to alleviate perceived delays to the program. SpaceX wasn't offered a similar opportunity. The inspector general criticized commercial crew managers for offering the additional money for Starliner missions, calling $157 million of that payment, quote, unnecessary costs. In a statement, NASA disagrees with the inspector general's characterization, and Boeing says the bidding process was, quote, fair and open, and two disagrees with the OIG's findings. The report says NASA astronauts launching to the International Space Station on SpaceX's Crew Dragon and Boeing's Starliner may have to wait until at least next summer for rides to the station. The report outlines delays in developing the parachutes, propulsion, and launch abort systems of the spacecraft. And because of these challenges, the space agency won't send commercial crew astronauts to the station until at least summer 2020. That's according to the inspector general. It paints a bleak picture of the future of the ISS if human launches are delayed until next summer. The IG finds the U.S. presence on the station could reduce to just one astronaut, leaving little time for science. In a statement to WMFE from SpaceX after the report's release, the private company says it looks forward to launching astronauts at the start of the year. Now, if you recall, that's in line with a schedule outlined by NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, who said that NASA astronauts would launch early next year. Now, that delay is according to reports from the Office of the Inspector General. But both companies are coming up on critical tests of their capsule that will help NASA solidify human launch dates. Boeing is set to launch an uncrewed capsule to the station next month. And in just a few weeks, SpaceX will test a critical safety system of the Crew Dragon capsule, its abort motors, mid-flight after launching atop a Falcon 9 rocket. I've got a link to the full report on our website. You can visit wmfe.org slash space. Meanwhile, at the International Space Station, astronauts carried out an extraordinarily complicated series of spacewalks last week. This is Mission Control Houston. Parmitano and Morgan have placed their suits on internal battery power marking the official start of today's spacewalk at 5.39 a.m. Central Time, 6.39 a.m. Eastern Time, the first of at least four spacewalks to repair the Hubble, the uh, 
Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer now officially underway. The spacewalks center around a cosmic ray detector on the International Space Station's exterior that needs repair. The $2 billion instrument is searching for antimatter and dark matter. The instrument was designed to operate only for three years. But by upgrading the instrument's cooling system, NASA can keep it running another 10 years more. Another spacewalk is scheduled for this week to attach the plumbing to the new cooling system. The space shuttle Endeavour delivered the instrument to the space station on the next-to-last shuttle flight back in 2011. You can find these stories and more on our website, wmfe.org space. And give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. Voyager 2 launched 42 years ago from Cape Canaveral on a mission to visit the outer planets of our solar system. Three, two, one. We have ignition and we have liftoff. We have liftoff of the Titan Centaur carrying the first of two Voyager spacecraft to extend man's senses farther into the solar system than ever before. Reports coming back indicate those twin large solid motors are functioning perfectly, producing 1.2 million pounds of thrust each. The spacecraft, along with its twin Voyager 1, is now traveling in interstellar space, the area outside of our solar system, at more than 35,000 miles an hour. That's incredibly fast. It could travel around the world in less than an hour. Even at that speed, it has taken four decades to leave the solar system, and it still continues to transmit data back to Earth. Scientists are just now digging into that data, and it's painting a new picture of the boundary of our solar system. The New York Times reporter Ken Chang wrote about the science coming back. He joins us via Skype to talk about that mission, starting from its launch in 1977. It was an alignment of the outer planets, so Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune were all roughly lined up in one part of the solar system. So it's a very rare opportunity for a spacecraft to go visit all of them at once. But of course, they weren't quite sure they could get to all four of them. So primarily, they wanted to make sure they would hit Jupiter and Saturn in the first four years. Kind of talk about the the spacecrafts themselves. I mean, there were two of them. Uh, they were launched to do this kind of survey of the outer planets. Um, what was the what was it like launching these things? I'm trying to remember. I was still in elementary school, middle school back <laughs> then. So how long ago it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually don't remember the launch. I do remember when they flew by Jupiter and Saturn, and they totally transformed how we looked at the solar system. Uh, tell us a little bit now. It's it's four decades now traveling through space, still transmitting science. Um, that's quite the feat for spacecraft, especially spacecraft that were designed that long ago. Was the intention of this mission to be last to, to last this long? The people who designed the spacecraft in the back of the mind always had this hope that they would get that far out, and they actually put a power source, this little these chunks of plutonium on there that actually powered the spacecraft not through a nuclear reactor, but, but through the heat that the plutonium released over time. And there was enough plutonium on the two spacecraft to last that long. On the other hand, these spacecraft are complicated machines with moving parts, and I don't think they really thought that it's going to last four decades. As Ed Stone, the project scientist for the Voyagers, said, when they launched these two spacecraft, the space age itself, since Sputnik, was only 20 years old. And so the idea that they had to launch something that's going to last twice as long as that, 40 years, was something that they really didn't expect. 
Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to to see that these you know these mighty machines are still transmitting science back. And as you wrote, um, Voyager two left the solar system about a year ago, transmitted that science back, and now recently uh, scientists have been able to disseminate that data and and publish some pieces about what they've learned from it. Um, what what have scientists learned? Uh, from the data from from Voyager 2 as it exits the solar system? So Voyager 1 left the solar system uh, six years ago, and Voyager 2 left one year ago. So they've now actually sort of had poked this interstellar space in two parts of the bubble. And so they were interested in comparing what was what did Voyager 1 see six years ago, which was during the height of the, of the solar cycle, versus what Sol- Voyager 2 saw, last year when the sun was in a quieter period of its cycle. And there was many similarities. Um, they saw a change in the magnetic field direction. They saw how they could see the solar wind petering out and they could see the, the new direction of the, of the interstellar wind. On the other hand, they saw differences as well, so, such, that, um, such as it didn't quite, that transition didn't happen quite the same way. So when Voyager 1 ex- exited, the solar wind, this, it, the wind usually goes out away from the sun, but as it got closer to the boundary, the wind sort of got pushed sideways and, and they didn't see any more outward velocity. With Voyager 2, this outward velocity sort of fluctuated but never stayed at zero. And what that means, no one isn't really quite sure, but it's a lot of these, lot of these small differences that they now get the puzzle over f- for years. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it left the bubble. What What is this bubble? So the sun's continually spewing out these particles, mostly protons and electrons, at a speed of about a million miles per hour. And they go off in all directions. And this is the bubble of the solar wind that goes out from the sun. Now, as it goes further out, it becomes less dense and slows down a bit. Meanwhile, in the rest of the Milky Way galaxy, there's also other um, particles, hydrogen atoms, protons, and electrons, which are what were spewed out by other stars, uh, especially supernovas, exploding stars. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, the, the interstellar wind is going to be more powerful than the solar wind. And so that's going to, so the boundaries where the solar wind and the interstellar wind sort of uh, balance each other. And so the two voyages have now passed past that boundary and so that they're now in the interstellar wind and have left this, the bubble of the solar wind around our sun. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, there's there's differences between uh, the exit points of, of these two spacecraft because they weren't shot in the same direction, right? Correct. Um, so Voyager 1 went out at the northern hemisphere and Voyager 2 is heading out through the southern hemisphere. Gotcha. How how is this kind of shaping the way scientists understand um, our solar system and and this this bubble that uh, basically defines the boundary of our solar system? So until the, until the two voyagers got out there, everyone knew there was a there had to be a boundary at some point, but they had no idea whether it was half the distance or twice the distance of what they actually saw. So now they actually have two precise measurements of where that boundary is, and that's two more points than they would have ever gotten otherwise. Um, and now they actually 
have the first directions of the interstellar wind. Again, no other spacecraft has actually made measurements out there before. And so everything that they thought they knew about there was based on models about from indirect measurements and from other particles that sort of made its way from the interstellar region down by Earth. Mm -hmm. so, so now they have direct measurements, of course, that's what really moves science forward is when you actually can get a piece of what you're looking for. Speaking to these scientists uh, for your reporting for The New York Times, um, is this what they expected? Um, no, because one of the great things about Voyager is that everyone sort of had these rough ideas of what they sort of expected. And every time Voyager went something new, they would find something that was completely unexpected. So one of the things that they've discovered is that the directions of the magnetic field in this region is not pointing in the direction that they thought it was going to be. And they have no idea why or um, at what point that this the field might rotate around to what they thought they would see. Mm -hmm. And this was something they sort of got, got from indirect information from the ultraviolet light that they can measure at Earth. And that from that, you can sort of infer what the average magnetic field is in the Milky Way galaxy and what they saw in that from the Voyagers did not match that. It was sort of, um, it's in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a common theme in, in science altogether, right? The more you learn, the more questions you have um, as you collect more data. Right, which is why you do these experiments, because if you knew everything without looking, then there's no point in looking. Uh, Ken Chang, what, what's next? I mean, are, are, are these twin uh, spacecraft going to keep kicking through the uh, interstellar space? They'll keep on going forever. However, the power, as I mentioned earlier, they're powered by these chunks of plutonium and they're decaying away. So the only think they're going to have enough energy to run any of the scientific instruments for about another five years or so. Mm -hmm. If they're lucky, perhaps it might stretch out to 10 years. But um, eventually they, they're going to go away. Is there anything on the horizon? I mean, this is a mission that was four decades in the making for scientists to get the first data points or, or, or evidence from the edge of the solar system. Is there anything in the works? Or are we going to have to wait another four decades to, to get something similar and take some more measurements? So right now, there's only one, else, one other spacecraft heading that way, which is the New Horizons spacecraft that flew by Pluto a few years ago. Now, unfortunately, it's not moving as fast as the Voyagers, so its plutonium source is going to run out before it gets to the boundary with interstellar space. And beyond that, there's currently nothing that's flying out there or being built that will go as far as the Voyagers are right now. Mm -hmm. But um, scientists at NASA and elsewhere, of course, thinking about, well, we really do want to get more data other than these two points that the Voyagers has measured. So there's a team at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, they are actually now coming up with ideas for what they call an interstellar probe, which is a mission that wouldn't stop at any of the planets, but actually would basically be geared to getting to the boundary and far beyond the boundary as quickly as it can. And they're putting together a study now. They're hoping if it, if it works that perhaps they get launched by 2030 or so. Ken, this is a a mission, as we've mentioned, 42 years strong, brought us some incredible images of planets um, that we had never seen before, and now is the first spacecraft to you know punch its way through this bubble of, of our solar system. I mean, what impact is this having, not just on the scientific community, but 
the public and and the public's interest in space and space exploration and and journeying outside of our solar system so for me growing up as a child of the 70s that voyagers really were the defining space mission of that decade i mean just as for the 60s it was apollo and the idea that astronauts stepped on the moon motivated and inspired a whole generation of people for people who, who are a little bit younger than that every few years seeing these amazing colorful graphs of jupiter the moons of jupiters the you know the wonderful volcanic regions on io the ice covered of surface of europa and then going to saturn and seeing the rings and its moons and then uranus and neptune and seeing everything for the first time really made the solar system someplace real as opposed to these little pictures that we saw in, a, in a, you know, points of light that you see in the night sky. These are now real places for people who saw those pictures. Mm -hmm. And will you have a sense of sadness when, uh, when those science instruments shut down and, and the Voyagers stopped transmitting data? Yeah, I mean, in a real sense, that's sort of like the end of my childhood. Mm -hmm. well, we've been speaking with Kenneth Chang. He's a science reporter at the New York Times and wrote about the recent scientific findings of Voyager 2, which recently punched itself through the bubble of the solar system into interstellar space. Uh, Ken Chang, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. Voyager 2's twin, Voyager 1, punched through the heliosphere back in 2012. What did that sound like? Well, since I'm a radio guy, I had to find out. This is basically sounds of the spacecraft flying through the dense plasma at the edge of our solar system. Pretty cool, right? Both Voyager spacecraft have golden records, which contain sounds and images of life on Earth in the rare case that some alien civilization might one day intercept the spacecraft. They are far from the only way we're trying to communicate with extraterrestrial life. Next week, we'll speak with author and journalist Daniel Oberhaus about the history of our efforts to talk to other worlds and what we're doing to make first contact. That's next week here on Are We There Yet? But just ahead, the science behind junk in space and why some are concerned over SpaceX's plans to put thousands of satellites into orbit. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. SpaceX's Starlink constellation is taking shape. The private company launched 60 satellites into orbit last week. They'll be part of a network of thousands of satellites to blanket the globe with global high-speed internet. But some are concerned that the constellation, along with other planned space-based internet networks, could add to the growing number of space debris and interfere with astronomical observations. For this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we're joined by Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney, and Addie Dove, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. We begin the conversation talking about the science of these constellations and the risks so many satellites zooming around in space might pose. There's sort of two problems. One is collisions between those satellites and other satellites that are up there. 
And what do you do about that? And the other is light pollution for terrestrial astronomy. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, let's break those two down. So we've got uh, just congestion, right? That this, this is a lot of stuff that's going to be up there, right? It is. Yeah, we start, we've heard a lot, sort of recently started to hear a lot more about space junk, even with the amount of satellites that we have in orbit right now. Um, but these uh, constellations that are being added are adding orders of magnitude more satellites into orbit in like very similar orbits. Um, and so, and it's not just the Starlink uh, and SpaceX, it's also constellations like OneWeb that mm-hmm. want to have lots and lots of these satellites in orbit. Yeah, it turns out space is huge. But the place that we like to put satellites is not so huge. Mm-hmm. So they all tend to be about the same elevation off the surface of the Earth, and so it's getting crowded there. Mm-hmm. What makes Starlink different than uh, other satellites that provide internet? There, there, there has been internet, you know, satellites before. There's, you know, satellite television communications. Why do they have to have all of these satellites in space? Most of our current communication satellites are in what are called geostationary orbits. So that's much, much higher altitude above the surface of the Earth so that it takes those satellites 24 hours to go around. So they stay stationary over a certain point on the equator. You can point your antennas at them and you're good to go. These satellites are in low Earth orbit, much closer. That takes care of that crowding or causes that crowding problem we were just talking about. Uh, And that's to get greater bandwidth. You're going to have hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of people using these for Internet traffic. So it's a huge amount of data. Those satellites need to be able to see everybody and see each other to communicate. Mm-hmm. SpaceX has said that these satellites can, you know, avoid each other and can do all these maneuvers. Uh, do we trust machines to uh, keep themselves from running into each other? I've never had a machine break on me. If you guys <laughs> ever, so. Just do a software update. Everything works fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Supposedly, they're going to be able to have a little bit of propulsion and sort of navigate away from each other. But I don't actually know that, like, the current versions have propulsion because there's been some the- issues with the, some of them deorbiting already. And so they have something on board, but it's not, like, super capable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, one of their mitigation plans is to launch them into low orbits make sure that they're working. If they don't work, then leave them there and drag, cause them to come in and burn up. Mm-hmm. And if they do work, then boost them up into their higher operational orbits. So that's one mm-hmm. mitigation strategy that they've got. But things break. The Motorola... The Iridium? Had, yeah, the Iridium satellites, 30% of those didn't work. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and those those have been those are a constellation that have been going up since the '90s or something, and they've yeah. they've uh, they're the ones you can see iridium flares sometimes. You see a really bright flash just because mm-hmm. of where they are in their orbits. Um, but but the, so there's a lot of them out there, but only a small number of them have worked. And also, not only if they work or not, but also um, if you're starting to put more and more into these orbits, if they slightly go out of their orbit, that can mess up um, sort of tra- planned trajectories. Mm-hmm. Are we 100% certain that if they fall out of orbit, they're not going to be harmful to anybody down here on Earth? Is it something that's going to burn up in the atmosphere? They'll yes. burn up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're relatively small satellites. Um, and so for all like CubeSats, the smaller satellites that are launched right now, and for these, um, and for the OneWeb satellites and things like that, they're built. And there are some rules about the lifetimes that they can be on orbit and then like what materials they're made out of. And so they have to be things that will burn up as they're coming in through the atmosphere. Does this present a challenge to you all are scientists and at the University of Central Florida, you do a lot of work with CubeSats and and these smaller payloads. Does this present an issue with um, getting your payloads up into orbit? Is there just less space now for you to do stuff like this? Potentially not only less physical space, but there's also the radio space that these satellites are orbiting in. So the FCC governs permissions to launch satellites like this into space because you 
each satellite's basically a radio station, and it has to be able to communicate with the ground. You have to be able to communicate with it. And so there's a lot of competition for the airwaves space as well as the physical space. And uh, as Jim was saying, in these low Earth orbits, it's crowded. Addy mentioned that it's going to be increasing the number of satellites by a huge amount. There's only 2,000 operational satellites up there now. We're talking about putting 40,000 more mm-hmm. up in the next 5, 10 years. So it, just makes, it makes planning future missions more challenging, right? So you have to make sure not only your thing is doing what it's, it should be doing, but it also has to avoid all of these other things. So it puts the onus on you to... Right. Be, be more careful. And along with that, you mentioned at the start of the segment that there's an issue with visual pollution, right? Light pollution from these things as well. Tell me a bit about how that's impacting uh, the science that's happening down here on Earth. Yeah, so there's a big concern for in the astronomy community um, in that we have – we think of light pollution of lights that are here on Earth that sort of make it harder to see up in the sky. But also um, a lot of people are very concerned that these satellites, especially when they're in these lower orbits, are going to be visible um, and mess up astronomical viewing. So you'll have this bright thing that's closer to you streak across the sky and mess up your, your astronomical image. Um, and there's been some people that have demonstrated already that this has been a problem. Um, but there have been there's been arguments made by SpaceX and others that like when they're finally in their optimal orbits, they won't interfere as much with imaging. Um, it's a little bit as much. Yeah, they still will right. as much. And but I mean, it's one of those things where we have to sort of decide at some point technology and future is going to happen. So you have to sort of mm. optimize some of these mm-hmm. things. Yeah, probably the uh, the satellites are reflecting sunlight. You get streaks across. They're already trying to simulate how they'll plan observations with these big new sky survey telescopes to avoid mm-hmm. them. And there's also the issue that you kind of know the orbit, but not 100% perfectly. You have to keep tracking it. So the U.S. Air Force tracks all the orbital debris that's up there. Now they got 10, 100 times more things to track. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get little, uh, you get conjunction notices. If you have a CubeSat in orbit, you get what are called conjunction notices. So that's if there's going to be something near the orbit of your spacecraft. So like I get those updates. And you um, go, oh, shoot. And you go, oh, <laughs> especially if yeah, you have a CubeSat, sure that's the language. which there's nothing you can do about it, right? You're like, oh, no, it's up there. And it's maybe going to get hit by some sort of Chinese space junk, which was what it was most recently for me. Uh, but um, yeah, you just sort of say, oh, that's not good. But, but as this... But the technology for that is old, and it's relatively limited. And as we get more and more satellites, it's going to be harder to do. Well, I'm going to be able to get Netflix in the middle of nowhere, so you'll just have to deal with it, Addy. <laughs> Completely <laughs> reasonable. There you, go. you can chill wherever you want. We've been speaking with Addy Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. They are the hosts of the Walk About the Galaxy podcast and planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. Thank you all for being here. Great to be, be here. Thanks. That was UCF planetary scientists Addy Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney. They host the Walk About the Galaxy podcast. Find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you got a question for our segment, I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email, yet at wmfe.org, or find us on social media and drop your question there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty production assistance from Elizabeth Gondar. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org space. Never miss an episode and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast. You can get it on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you're getting your podcast these days. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our wonderful listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.